Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Today, we have Dory Clark. And Dory, Dory is really interesting. It's been fun kind of getting to know her online. This is really the first time that we've chatted. But she's a marketing strategy consultant and a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review. But she is a speaker, a consultant, and an author. But here's the thing I loved when I was reading her bio. People, she's one of those. She graduated college at age 18. Every now and then you run into somebody who did that and you think, uh, I was trying to figure out what frat to join when I was 18. And uh, she made it all the way through college and, and was ready to go into the work world by the time you know I barely knew what was going on. She is the author of a couple of books. She wrote a book called Reinventing You, which was her previous book that I do want to talk about because that fits in so well for those who've been listening to the last couple episodes about reinventing, relaunching, and leveling up. And then her newest book is Stand Out, which I want to hear all about. So, Dory, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Tom. Glad to be talking with you. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. So, you know, I, these introductions are always kind of funny because they're short and they're sort of, you know, just blah, blah, blah. And she graduated college by the time she was 18. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about Dory and about your business? All right. Fantastic. Well, I, uh, I live in New York City now. I uh, have been here for about a year. I lived in Boston before that. And I spend my time uh, writing books, as you mentioned, like Reinventing You and Stand Out. I also do a lot of business school teaching for places like the Fuqua School of Business at Duke and IE Business School in Spain, and uh, I travel a lot giving speeches and uh, doing uh, doing consulting work, so I keep busy. So what caused you to leave Boston and move to the Big Apple? You know, I had uh, the, the sort of broad picture was I had this thought that, uh, you know, that it might be an interesting experiment, uh, that it would be beneficial for my business to be in a place where there were way more people, way more commerce. I could meet interesting people and uh, that, that that might jumpstart my network and the, the, my creativity and the work that I did in ways that I couldn't necessarily predict. Uh, and and that, that's really been the case. It's been fantastic. Uh, the immediate impetus, actually, as, uh, as pet lovers who are listening might um, sympathize with, my kitty that I had had for about 16 years in Boston died, and I was really sad about it. And uh, I, I was so sad. In fact, I decided that I would sell my condo because my condo reminded me too much of him. And I thought, you know what? If I'm going to sell my condo, I might as well just move and reinvent my, myself, speaking of reinvention. <laughs> well, my only real regret that I can ever point to is I had the opportunity to move to New York in 1990. And my brother lived there. In fact, he still lives in the area. My brother is the premier saxophone repairman to the stars in New York City. That's and, amazing. Yeah, to you know anybody who's known for playing the saxophone, you know Bill Singer repairs their horn. And uh, he had an opportunity for me to come and, and live with him. He was in, in searching for a roommate, and it was one of those things. It would have been in Hell's Kitchen. It was you know centrally located, and I had a job offer in Northern California, and I went the safe route. And while my mm. life worked out, my, my life worked out 
out great. I, I met my wife. We ended up moving to Texas. Everything really worked out well. I, I, I certainly don't have like sadness around the regret, but I really wish I had taken the leap. And every time I get the opportunity to speak in New York or to go and visit New York, you know, I wander around thinking, God, the one thing I wish I did was lived here. So I, I'm envious that you're doing that. Oh, well, thank you. And you know, one of the things, Tom, that I've started to do uh, since I've been in New York in order to take advantage of, of this surfeit of interesting people uh, is to host a lot of gatherings and parties and dinner parties. Um, I do them regularly for business authors. Uh, sometimes I'll have you know groups where I just mix up interesting people. But occasionally I will have what I call theme parties. And it's actually very appropriate. Uh, this Friday, I am having a party of musicians, interesting musicians that I know. And I have a Grammy-winning jazz producer who's coming. I have a friend of mine who writes jazz operas. And so it sounds like I should invite your your brother to this party if he wants to come. So maybe you can give me his uh, his email address and, and uh, we can get some some crazy jazz networking happening. Yeah, no, he is. He is pretty cool. He's an interesting he's an interesting cat, as they say. Oh, yeah. But uh, beyond New York. So, you know, you graduated college. I always find it funny when someone has graduated at 18. So you, you got sort of that jump start. What did you do right away? I mean, you know, 18 year olds who graduate college. I mean, did you say I'm going to go become a marketing strategist or what did you do for work at that point? Yeah. So I, I didn't really feel ready to enter the workforce. I, uh, you know, when you're 18 years old, everyone in the office, I mean, even the least senior people are way older than you. And so I decided that I would kill some time by getting a theology degree. <laughs> so uh, so that's what I did right after undergrad is I got a master's of theological studies. And, and then, then where did that take you? So I, uh, my next job, my first real job that I got after I finished my master's program was, uh, was actually being a political reporter. Well, actually, technically I managed, uh, I managed a state rep race. Um, you know, that, that didn't, that didn't take too long. It was just a few months uh, leading up to the election. But I managed the state rep race, and then I became a political reporter at a alternative news weekly in Boston, which is uh, now defunct. And uh, that was that was a cool job, cool introduction to journalism. But unfortunately, it was a star-crossed time to be entering journalism, uh, since it was uh, it was. 2000, the year was 2000, and it was really just the start of the internet collapsing advertising revenue. So I got laid off after about a year, and then I switched over into working on the other side, onto political campaigns. Um, so I was the press secretary on a gubernatorial race, and then I was the spokesperson on a presidential race in the 2004 cycle. Um, so I, I ended up having a lot of different jobs on my way to finding the one that I have now. So what led you from you know working for sort of you know somewhat traditional jobs, working as a, as a reporter and then working on the political side to actually saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go out and hang my own shingle. So the, the transition for me was after the presidential campaign was over, sadly my candidate lost, um, I the, the job that I got, uh, you know, it was not even at that point occurring to me to be an entrepreneur. Um, I became the executive director of a nonprofit. And about a year into running this organization, I realized that basically what I was doing was being an entrepreneur. I was like, oh, this this is a small business that I'm running. Um, up to that point, all of the jobs that I had, you know, they were interesting, cool jobs, but they, they had very narrow functions. You know, you're a reporter, you write stories. You're a press secretary, you, you know, corral the media and write press releases or, or what have you. Um, and you didn't really get a good sense of the totality of of functions of the organization, but running the small nonprofit, we had 
three employees. I mean, it was tiny. Uh, the, bud, the, the, the whole budget was $150,000 a year. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we were super scrappy and there were not enough people to specialize in all honesty. I had to, I had to be, if not doing everything, I had to be aware of everything and aware of everything, uh, you know, how it ran. So I learned about things that I otherwise never would have about how to uh, update and maintain the website, how to keep the books, how to keep us straight with the authorities in terms of legal paperwork and things like that. And after doing that, you know, at low pay, uh, I, I, it just began to dawn on me like, oh, I now know how to run a business and I could run a business for myself. And so I spent the next year learning how to do that. I, uh, I sort of used the nonprofit as a tutorial almost. And so during that last year, I read a bunch of books on, uh, on business and entrepreneurship. I took some classes, uh, actually that the nonprofit paid for for me is kind of continuing education at uh, you know an adult ed center uh, to learn targeted things that I didn't know how to do um, you know design and PowerPoint and and QuickBooks and all of that <laughs> and uh, so I after after that year of kind of apprenticeship I went out and launched my own business which I've now been running for nine years Wow so over the nine years what are a couple of lessons that you've learned that you wish you had known going into it well I think that probably the most important one, you know, the biggest change, this was something that, that actually um, was really kind of a pivot for me about four years into having the business. Um, I, I started out like a, like a lot of uh, small business owners, just modeling myself on people around me. And, you know, that was my vision of a successful career. And that was, that was great. Um, but really the form that it took was, uh, just sort of, you know, scrappy referral based marketing. Um, I, I was building up a very good and very successful small local business, but what I realized needed to happen was that if I ever was going to cross over into a place where I wanted to have a higher profile, a national profile rather than a local profile, I would need to start doing inbound marketing and creating content. And that I was, I was a little slow to the game on that. And, um, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world, but I certainly would have started uh, doing that far sooner because that is what enables you to build up the kind of brand that can, uh, that can draw clients to you and enable you to charge premium prices. Well, and, and I think so many of us would look back and say, you know, I was late to the game with something that we did when we started our business, but that's being human, right? We don't, we don't get to have all the knowledge up front. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. So you've been doing this for nine years. Dory, what is it that you absolutely love about the life of working for yourself, about being an entrepreneur? Well, I think that probably the thing that I like the most is uh, is just the sheer autonomy of it. I think it's uh, it's it's amazing. I mean, from from the very small and tactical, the fact that you do not have to uh, commute to work in the morning like everybody else. You know, I, I work from home now, which is amazing. I you know almost immediately it's like, oh my god, I bought myself two extra hours a day. I mean, the amount of productivity that can come just from that is incredible. Well, and I'm in, um, my, I'm in my kitchen right now, and, and before you called, one of my past guests on the show, a professional speaker, a friend of mine named Patrick Henry, called me, and we were just chatting away about business, and, you know, I was sitting in my kitchen having a cup of coffee, and then all of a sudden I looked up, I said, oh, I've got to go do an interview, and, you know, I didn't have to go comb my hair or do anything. I just logged on to Skype, and, and, and we're doing this, and so I, I totally get your point about working from home. It, it's got a lot of advantages. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you I mean, 
there, there's even more time savings, of course, because you, you don't have to do things th- at the same time as everybody else. Um, I have uh, I have an entrepreneur friend, uh, Erica Dewan, a fellow business author, and she actually had this great idea. I thought it was fantastic. Sadly, I can't do it. Um, but she sent out an email last week, and she's having an entrepreneur's beach party in a couple of weeks. And it's, it's like a, a day trip to the beach. Um, on a Thursday, I think. And she was just sending it around. She's like, hey, we're all entrepreneurs, so we can make our own schedule. So let's go to the beach on a, on a Thursday instead of on the weekend when it's all, you know, crowded with everybody else. Um, you know, let's, let's do it because we can, basically. And I just thought, oh, that's fantastic. That is maxing it out. Okay, so you love the autonomy. You love the fact you get to work in your pajamas and that you can go to the beach on Thursday, although you're not. But you could, if you wanted to, you could be at the beach on Thursday with your That's friend. right. Dory, what do you not love? What makes you look back and say, I wish I still worked for a campaign or a newspaper or, or whatever? What, is there anything you ever just say, God, I wish I had a regular job? Mm, you know, I mean, not... Not really, to be honest. There, I mean, it it would be so incredibly hard to, uh, to you know to to lure me back to uh, to having a regular job. I would say that the the only thing that that really would is just uh, if I had the opportunity to do something where I felt like it was it was just an amazing challenge. Um, to, to make a very big impact that I couldn't otherwise make as an entrepreneur. So, I mean, you know, let's say I got offered some job, uh, some high-ranking job with the U.S. government where I was able to uh, affect national policy on such and such issue. That, you know, that would be something that I just literally couldn't do outside of the, the confines of, uh, of working in that structured environment. And so uh, if, if it was a cool enough opportunity, cool enough challenge, then I would, I would want to do it. Or maybe, you know, if there was, if there was some corporation that... Uh, you know, like so, if somebody came to me and said, "Dory, will you be the CEO of Twitter?" <laughs> now that they're looking, I would probably want to be the CEO of Twitter because that is actually super interesting. Um, that would be great. The other thing, actually, that is my my secret uh, later in life fantasy. You know, maybe in the ne- you know like a decade from now or something like that, is I actually would like to be a college president. Um, I think you know we are at a time of massive disruption of the education industry uh, and higher ed specifically. It doesn't know you know, how to fix itself. It doesn't know how to maintain relevance. Um, if you, in a world of MOOCs where you can do things for free, why should you pay $50,000 a year to a fancy private institution? You know, the, I mean, they, they need to create uh, a real value proposition and articulate that in a way that I think that they have not ever had to do before. So being able to, uh, to help steer, uh, steer an institution in a foundational way would probably be something that would get me back uh, into a regular job, but but not really anything besides that. So you bring up a topic that's near and dear to our heart around the Singer family right now, and that is higher education as we are about to launch our oldest child off to a uh, one of those you know fancy private schools. Uh, she'll be in the Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon starting. Oh. And uh, so, you know, you bring up an interesting thing because that I, I, I make the joke, but I think it's based in a little bit of truth. The only part of parenting over the past 18 years I have not loved was yeah. the, was the process of her having to go through the application 
applications and waiting and not getting one choice and getting then too many other great choices. And in the end, it worked out fabulous. I mean, I always say that somehow there's, you know, some some higher power at work because the right kid found the right school. This is a really good match. And she, I think, will thrive in Pittsburgh when she gets there. But I tell you, the process of it and, and the sheer cost involved and the, the, the trepidation that it brings as a parent to write those checks, uh, you're right. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on in that higher education world. Yeah, definitely. Well, congratulations. That's uh, that sounds like an exciting adventure for for your daughter and you. Well, maybe offline I'll ask you some questions since you teach at a couple of business schools. I'll ask you what what does a a freshman business student what's the what's the best advice you have for her? Maybe we'll get that offline. All right. <laughs> so, Dory, what advice do you have for someone who's listening who says, you know, I want to be like Dory. I want to move to New York and work in my pajamas. Um, <laughs> Somebody who wants to start their own business, and maybe they want to start something that, that's you know a growth-oriented business, or maybe they want to become a consultant and a strategist. What advice do you have for somebody? Yeah, so uh, you know, I think I think one of the most important early pieces of advice, actually, um, and I think something that has contributed to my success is making sure that um, that I've never been in a position where I have had to freak out about money. Um, I think that you know that's that's the thing that that drives people back into the workforce is that they have not necessarily planned enough or uh, they're just cutting it a little too close. And so for me, for instance, I planned a year before I launched my business. You know, I was, I was saving money. I was, uh, trying to fill in the gaps and educate myself about what I needed to know so that I would be ready to hit the ground running. I am a really big fan of, uh, of A, making sure that when you launch your business, you have a lot of cash reserves, at least six months in the bank, but hopefully even more than that, um, because you know the, the number one downside, you could say, of entrepreneurship is just the incredibly variable s- uh, swings in income. Um, you know, you can, you can have... Um, incredibly lucrative months where you you know you're just raking in the money and then you can have dry spells which I've certainly had for 3 or 4 months where you get zero and there's not there's not really any rationale behind it honestly you can look at it and be like why why are no calls coming in why are no checks coming in and there's not a good reason oftentimes it's just sometimes um you know there's there's i mean of course you need to keep up the activities that you're that you're doing i mean yes if you stop marketing money is going to stop coming in but sometimes there's just weird stuff and uh you know everybody wants to call in september and nobody wants to call in december and that's how it is so um so saving money is big and also living below your means i mean one of the the biggest things for me that has been really essential i'm living now in new york but prior to that um you know i when i was living in Boston, I bought in, you know, I, I bought it in a nice uh, city that was just outside Boston, but I bought in what you could call an emerging neighborhood. And I did that because I in no way wanted to stretch my budget. I could have afforded something that was quote unquote nicer. I didn't want to. I wanted to live in a place where I, I knew with 100% certainty that even if I had the unluckiest month or the unluckiest year, um, I could always pay my bills. I could always uh, pay for my house. And, uh, and then I didn't have to worry about it. Anytime I got extra money, I would, I would 
put it toward paying off my mortgage um, because I did not want the stress over my head of that. And that really contributed to a lot of entrepreneurial confidence because it meant that I could reject anything that I didn't want to do or anything that I felt like wasn't a strategic fit. People can smell desperation and you need to position yourself financially so that you are never desperate. Well, and, and I can relate to that because my whole plan was to have like a full year of my salary, you know, pre-tax money, but the, but the post-tax amount of money in my own bank account before I went out and launched on my own. And then in 2009, I got laid off and I had about three months money saved. So I was, yeah. about, I figured it was going to take me another couple of years to launch my business. And then I just launched, but I launched in the bottom of the recession. And in a way it worked for me because other speakers and, and trainers, you know, charged more than I did at the beginning. And so, you know, people weren't spending money and they're like, oh, well, and I was good. And so I got hired. And then as the economy came back, my rates were able to go up to the level they should have been. That being said, that three months of money ran out really fast and I needed about a two year runway. And had I had a full year's money in the bank, I would have had two years run because I I earned money over that two years. So I, I earned about in two years, about the equivalent of one year. And so I could have run myself without huge lifestyle changes for two years if I had prepared properly. But, you know, the recession snuck up on me and I got laid off and, and I went out the door and you said, you know, you never wanted to feel like you had to freak out because of money. And I wrote that down because I can't tell you how many times in the, you know, year two, three and four, I freaked out. And, yeah. And it's hard. No, absolutely. I think, I think your story is a really important one. So I have a lot more questions I want to ask you, Dory. But first, I've got to thank our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. Podfly sets you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you will sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and the technical work so you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing amazing people like Dory Clark. For an exclusive offer for the listeners of this show, they've set something up, so go visit their website at podfly.net slash cool things and see what they've got going over there. And I know because I get a lot of emails from listeners of this show, a lot of you want to start a podcast and you don't know even how to start. And I was in the same boat until I stumbled upon podfly.net and we're almost a year into, I think this is episode 84 or 85, we're almost a year into cool things entrepreneurs do. So thank you to Podfly and thank you for being my sponsor, Podfly. So Dory, tell me, what is something cool you're doing in your business right now? So one cool thing that I'm uh, that I'm doing is I I just got off my my book tour and so that was really the big focus for me of uh, of the first half of 2015 was to launch Stand Out Well but now that I'm back um, I have a little more space in my schedule of course I'm going to still be continuing to promote it but uh, the thing that I'm really interested in learning about and uh, and growing in the latter half of the year is uh, is online courses. I feel like that is, you know, speaking of education disruption, that is certainly something that is going to be growing, that, um, that people are understanding that you have to continue taking charge of your own professional development. Your education absolutely doesn't start, uh, you know, it doesn't stop when you finish college when you're 22 years old. And, and it also means that 
you know, a lot of people used to think, oh, well, if I continue my education, that means going back to school. And I, you know, certainly that's right for some people, but, uh, but, you know, not necessarily everybody, not everybody needs an MBA, not everybody needs, um, you know, a JD. I mean, certainly you do if you want to be a lawyer, but uh, plenty of people have done that as the, oh, I don't know what else to do, so I'll get this degree. Uh, I think increasingly people are realizing that that is, that's foolhardy, unless you really are clear on your goals up front, and that a lot of what you need to know is stuff that you can get in more targeted bites. And so, uh, so consequently, I think online courses are going to continue to play a much bigger role. And so I've been experimenting with it casually for a while. I did my first creative live course um, last summer called Personal Branding for Creative Professionals. And I just released one that I did with, uh, with The Economist called Reinventing Yourself Mid-Career. Um, so those are kind of my initial forays. But I want to continue learning more about it and maybe developing more online courses uh, as we progress throughout the rest of the year. Well, and I've taken several courses on Coursera, and I am a huge fan of Coursera. I mean, one I took and was really attentive to make sure that I took all the tests and that I got the certificate that I took the course. And then I realized you don't even have to be that dedicated to it. It doesn't cost you anything. And so the next two that I took, I just sort of took at my own pace and didn't worry about my scores. And I still walked away with so much knowledge on, you know, marketing skills and things like that. And, you know, Coursera, it's taught by, you know, professors at Wharton and USC and Carnegie Mellon and Stanford. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're taking these courses that are the same courses that are being taught to, to the students and you're gaining the knowledge. And so I think there's so many options out there for people to, to learn today that it is exciting. I think you're right. Yeah, it really, it really is pretty remarkable. And, uh, you know, we, we have, we have access to all this stuff. I mean, it, it hasn't been worked out yet, uh, in, in terms of the longer courses. I mean, I, I think for, um, you know, for, for short targeted courses that people are motivated enough to pay for, they're going to go through and do it. Um, for a lot of the free MOOCs, you know, of course, you see something like, uh, you know, 100,000 people sign up for it and, you know, <laughs> whatever, like, you know, a thousand of them uh, actually complete it. So, you know, I, I think that there are kinks that need to be worked out. I mean, you know, maybe maybe not everybody literally needs to, to complete it, but I, I think, you know, we need to think more about modularization. We need to think more about ways to provide support to people who are learning through distance. But the, the problem is just unimaginable. The idea that that this information can be made freely available is so revolutionary. I'm I'm uh, very bullish on it as a whole. So let's talk a little bit about Standout, your newest book. Tell us all about that. Yeah, so Standout is a book basically about how to become a recognized expert in your field. It is. Uh, I, I I was curious because we. We now live in this world that is noisier than ever, more crowded with with marketing messages and you know people uh, people you know screaming on on Twitter and Facebook and you know everybody's getting hundreds of emails a day. We're kind of overloaded and overwhelmed. And I wanted to understand better if you have a good idea, if you really want to get get your idea out there, get known, get recognized for your expertise, how would you go about doing that in a noisy world? How do people get noticed? And so I interviewed about 50 top experts uh, in a variety of different fields, uh, some ones from the business world who your uh, listeners may be familiar with, uh, you know, Seth Godin, the marketing expert, Dan Pink, uh, well-known author of books like Drive and To Sell is Human, uh, Robert Cialdini, uh, the preeminent 
influence expert, uh, David Allen of Getting Things Done fame, Tom Peters, the great business guru. Uh, I interviewed all of those guys as well as top scientists and urban planners and people like that to try to understand what enabled them to break through. What did that process look like for them? And are there lessons that can be extracted that regular professionals can follow? And so I, I really tried to create a kind of uh, guidebook of sorts so that people who have good ideas that they're passionate about can get recognized for them. So I want to talk about your first book, though, Reinventing You. And the reason I want to talk about that is because we've had this recurring theme on the show about how do people reinvent and so let's let's go back in time to this book and tell us a little bit about what led you to this, how you reinvented, and what advice you have for people, because a lot of the listeners of this show, this topic has resonated very heavily. You know, how do you reinvent? Yeah, reinvention is a is a huge important topic and and I got interested in it personally based on my early days. We you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I had a bunch of different careers, but you know, early on it was really marked for me with a lot of setbacks. I uh, I originally had thought that I wanted to be an academic and after I finished divinity school, I applied to uh to several doctoral programs and I didn't get into any of them. Uh so I uh, I was, you know, rather rather surprised and astonished because I didn't didn't have a plan B, uh, but you know, I left with my master's degree and said, "All right, I got to find something else." So I was actually really quite quite proud of myself when I got this job as a journalist, and I thought, "Okay, this is interesting. I can do this." Uh, and then a year later, you know, the industry collapses, and I, I lose that job. And so then I work on a, a you know multiple political campaigns, all of which lost. So it really wasn't until I got the the job at the nonprofit that there was something where I actually conceivably could have kept going. Uh, doing it. And, uh, and that was the, the place where, where entrepreneurship really came to me. And I, I thought, oh, you know, here's, here's what I want to do. But in the course of all of these career changes, I had to reinvent myself each time. You know, you have to learn how to tell your story differently. You need to clue people into what you're doing. And that's so important because if other people are not up on who you are today and what you're doing today, they are going to think of you, frankly, in a time capsule. They're not going to update their understanding of you unless you, you know, tell them, unless you make them do it. And as a result, they're not going to think of you for the kind of opportunities that you want now. They'll, they'll be thinking of you for the job that you would have loved five years ago. Um, so we have to take control of that to make sure that if we want our careers to advance properly, you need, you need the help and the resources of your network. Um, so that's how I got interested in it. And you know, most immediately, I wrote a blog post for the Harvard Business Review in 2010 called How to Reinvent Yourself. Basically, it was a short piece and it was based on my own experiences with this reinvention about how do you, you know, how do you shift? How do you tell your story? And that struck such a chord as it sounds like it has with your listeners that they asked me to expand it into a, a full-length magazine piece for the Harvard Business Review. And when I did that, I, I got approached and it turned out that I, I was then able to uh, to write a book proposal, which sold uh, and became my first book, Reinventing You, on that topic. But broadly speaking, um, I see reinvention as being a three-step process. The first step is, number one, getting clear on where you are now, because I think a lot of people assume that they know, but they, they haven't really taken the time to uh, to investigate uh, what their brand is now. They, they maybe assume that it's more about you know, creating a personal brand for themselves, but, but actually, you know, we all, 
we all have a brand. We are all known for something. So we need to know where we're starting in order to be able to reinvent properly. Um, so getting clear on that is number one. Number two is honing and defining the vision of where we want to go um, so that we're able to, uh, to to really just be be crystal clear, um, create that focus, and identify the pathways. You know, who do you need to get to know? What skills do you need to develop? How do you need to tell your story in order to get from point A to point B? And then finally, the third part is what I call living your brand. And that is making sure that every element of what you're doing is really consistent and that you are not just saying, oh, here's my new brand, here's my new identity, uh, but you are demonstrating it through things like could be getting involved in new professional organizations. It could be, uh, you know, writing or creating content, but somehow showing people that that yes, you're serious about this. You do have expertise in this, and this is your new direction. Well, and and you brought up such an important point, and that was telling people what it is you're doing, because otherwise they'll keep you in that box from five years ago. I had an interesting story in the fact that I was recommended to be the master of ceremonies for the users conference for a tech company here in Austin, Texas, where I live. And the CEO said, oh, he's not what I'm looking for. And he knew me when I was the marketing manager for his law firm almost a decade earlier. Mm. And he said, he's not techie enough. He's not this. He's not that. And the meeting planner was like, "Mm, I think you should talk to him. And he's like, I know him. I know him personally. He's not what I'm looking for. And they ended up meeting with me, the whole team. And the whole team decided that I was the right fit. And I had done a bunch of work for a, uh, a magazine in the technology space where I'd spoken at several of their conferences. And he was familiar with with that company. So he called them and asked about me. And they said, oh, he's exactly what you want as your master of ceremonies. So he hired me. And at the end of his event, he, I was watching like another speaker. I was standing in the back and he comes up behind me and he goes, why aren't you the MC of every tech event in Austin? Really <laughs> That's great. Because you were really good. And I said, do you remember how you didn't want to hire me because you thought of me as the law firm marketing guy? I go, That's the problem that I have is that people keep you in a box that's blue and they put you on a shelf. And he was like, wow. He goes, I didn't want to hire you. And then he went on to use me for two years and has referred me to several other companies. So it's when you said that, I just started laughing because I thought that happens to all of us. Is yes. People just put us in that box and we have to work. If we don't get us out of the box, no one's going to do it for us. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. We need to to be cognizant of that, and we need to take control of that. And it really comes from from being clear uh, and, uh, and and getting your message out there. Absolutely. So, Dory, we could talk about Dory Clark all day long, and we, you know, people would be thrilled because you're you're clearly a delightful soul, and it's fun hearing about your story. But I think some of the best entrepreneurs are observers. So, I love to ask my guests, who do you see out there? Someone else, not you, not your business. Who do you see who's doing something cool? Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of really great folks that are uh, that are doing cool things. Uh, I'll certainly point to my friend John Corcoran, who actually introduced us. Uh, John is somebody that I met uh, two years ago at the New Media Expo conference, and, and we've become friends and have collaborated on a variety of different things. Um, you know, uh, I had a Forbes blog, and so John uh, co-authored some posts with me. He had me on his podcast, and in fact, um, I was so impressed with with John's efforts that I included him as a case study in my new book, Stand Out, because uh, one of the areas that I think that he does well, and and certainly you do as well, Tom, is I I think that a lot of people, you know, as podcasting has been growing, um, people 
I think understand its potential as a uh, as a way of you know doing content marketing of sort of getting your expertise out there. What I think is less well understood, but it's really critical, is that podcasting and uh, variations of it, you know, it could be videos, it could be blogging or something like that, is also an incredibly powerful networking tool. And if you are an entrepreneur and you are looking to uh, to build your network, to build your business, one of the best things you can do is reach out to someone and say, hey, can I interview you? Because you, you know, we hear the phrase so much, it's almost become a cliche, but, uh, but you know, you hear lead with value. And I think this is a perfect example of it because for a lot of folks, you know, they'll get 50 requests a week. Oh, can I, can I take you out to coffee? Can I pick your brain? And it's just like, oh God, you know, I don't have time for that. But, uh, you know, if you're a busy person and you get overwhelmed with things like that, you're, the only answer is to say no to everybody. But, if somebody says and said, can I interview you and can I then share that interview with the world on the internet, that is something that, that actually is legitimately valuable to them. And it's a reason for them to move you to the front of the line. And I think that being aware of that is uh, very powerful. Well, and John, you know, I've been teaching, you know, networking and business development skills and your brand. I've been teaching this for over a decade. And I'll tell you, I don't think I've ever met anyone who's as good at it, who lives it as much as John Corcoran. I mean, he really, probably three or four of the guests I've had since I've had him on the show were people who he said, you have to know Dory or you have to know this person. And when he makes an introduction... I mean, I get a lot of people who, oh, I'll introduce you to my friend Seth Godin or whoever, you know, and like you never hear anything. When John makes yeah. an introduction, the famous person or the, you know, the, the person you want to interview, they go like, oh, well, if John introduced you, of course I'll be on your show. So he's, he's done a great job of, of making that happen. And, and you are right. I've only had one person say no to being a guest on this show. Mm. You know, in almost a hundred interviews, I've only had one person ever be like, yeah, I don't think so. And it's yeah, like, you know, that's, that's great. That's so powerful. So another thing I think, and you know, just through observation, is that great entrepreneurs also want to leave their mark on the world. So I love to ask people, what is it that you do to give back? So part of the way that that I try to give back is I've been involved, um, and actually I. Um you know, I'm, I'm probably going to need to to find a, a great new way to do this now that I'm in New York. But during the period that I lived in Boston, I got very involved with a couple of uh, charities, both of which I'm, I'm still involved in, although um, perhaps I'll, it'll need to be slightly less so in terms of my physical presence. Uh, but I was on, I, I was an M, uh, on the board of overseers, the advisory board for the MSPCA, the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, um, which is where I, uh, I actually had adopted my kids kitty uh, from. They're a great organization, the second oldest humane society in the United States. And uh, I, until very recently, uh, for three years, was the co-chair of the Board of Visitors, which is uh, their name for also the advisory board of uh, Fenway Health, which is the largest gay and lesbian health center in the U.S., uh, also based in Boston. And they they do amazing work around HIV research and a variety of other things. Um, So that was an organization that I was really pleased to be involved with. Excellent. Well, Dory, it has been such a pleasure to have you as a guest on this show. If someone was listening and they said, I need to know more about Dory Clark, how do they find you? Yeah, thank you, Tom. Uh, so the best way is actually through my website. It's doryclark.com, D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com. And one thing that I will mention to your listeners, if, uh, if you are interested in finding ways to really drill down and develop your own breakthrough idea and develop a following around it, um, I've created a free resource book. Uh, it's a 
42-page workbook that I adapted from Standout. And it's a, a series of questions that actually work you through uh, incrementally the process of developing your own ideas and getting recognized for them. So folks can download that free Standout workbook on my website, doryclark.com. And I have more than 400 free articles available on the site as well. Well, I was surfing around doryclark.com before we got on this call, and there is so much valuable information that I encourage everybody now to hit the pause button and and run over and and check that out because there is a lot of good stuff, and especially because we've been talking so much about, you know, reinventing and leveling up. Dory, I didn't even know. Dory is the person to know on this topic. So, again, thank you so much for being on the show. For those of you who have listened, thank you as always because without the listeners, there's not a show. So thank you very much for participating. If you like the show, run over to iTunes and leave a review. I get so excited when I get a new review on iTunes. It really does make my day. Or send me an email and just let me know that you listened to the show and, and you thought it was great. You can go ahead and probably contact Dory and say you learned about her here on Cool Things, and that would make her day as well. We'll be back in a couple of days with another interview with somebody just as cool as Dory Clark. But in the meantime, go out there and have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at at TomSinger. This podcast was produced in part by Podfly.net. Podfly, passion for great sounding podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.